if you weren't around last week, I'll probably need to introduce myself. Uh, I'm P.D. Crowder. I uh, just came on staff as pastor of Adult Ministries, and I'm excited. Thank you so much. Uh, excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, I also wanted you to meet my family, and so I have a picture. Uh, Ashley is my wife, and Emery and Yenny are my daughters. They're 10 and 7. They're just the best family in the world. I mean, I'm sure your families are great, too. Uh, and Forrest, Forrest the dog, who is, he, he goes one way or another, depending on the day. So, uh, but my family is right here. I would love for you to meet them and to meet us, and we look forward to getting to meet you as well. Now, when Ashley and I first got married, before we had kids, we'd been married for a whole two weeks before we moved across the country. We were living in Alabama, and we moved to Oregon. So we moved to Corvallis, Oregon, which is Western Oregon, um, for the first uh, ministry sort of assignment of my, of my career and, and for our family. And we had been there for a while, and we were leaving church one summer day and ran into some friends, and we started a conversation. Now, they were just a little older than us. They were married. They had their first kid, a one-year-old baby girl. And we hatched a random plan to get in the car that afternoon and to drive to Alabama. So the five of us, four adults and a baby, get into our car and we start driving and we don't spend the night anywhere. We drive straight for over a day and a half until we get to eastern Alabama. It's a long trip. Uh, and I have lots of little stories, but I'll spare those. Uh, we spent two weeks in Alabama and then we started the drive back and we realized as we were driving that we would be hitting St. Louis on the night of July 4th. And we, this was before smartphones, but we thought surely we can find fireworks in St. Louis on the night of the 4th. And so we pull into downtown about dusk, find a place to park, and there's a Hootie and the Blowfish concert happening underneath the arch. <laughs> Kids, you can look that up later what that is. Uh, <laughs> So, and then there were just massive fireworks. It was just amazing. One of the most memorable 4th of July that we can, we, we've ever had in our lives. Um, we found ourselves unexpectedly included in this really unexpected party. And this morning we finished our series called Block Parties where we're looking at Jesus showing up at parties and, and, and interacting in somewhat radical ways with people and showing them the love and grace of God. And, and what we find this morning in our text is that Jesus tells a parable about unexpected guests being included unexpectedly at a party. And so we'll look at that this morning. And I think what happens for us sometimes is we find ourselves unexpectedly presented in life with the opportunity to spend time with people at parties, at celebrations, in everyday ways, and, and that Jesus may be calling us to respond in, in our lives and to other people in ways that we might sometimes miss because we're not paying attention. And so my hope is, as we look at this text, we might see what it looks like to show up at a party with Jesus and what Jesus might be calling us to as we do such a thing. And so our text is in Luke chapter 14. It'll be on the screens if you have your own Bibles. I'll be reading from the, the new NIV or the current NIV. The ones in your pews will be very similar, just slightly different. Um, Luke 14, starting in verse 15. Let me set it up. So Jesus is sitting at a table with a bunch of Pharisees. So like John said last week, Pharisees were the serious people. They were sort of the religious elite of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people. They were very serious. They were very pious. And they took themselves and their religion very, very seriously. But Jesus did not always take them so seriously. And he has just said something at the table, very confrontational. And there's an awkward silence that follows. 
And so sometimes, some of you know, when there's an awkward silence in a social situation, some people think it's a good idea to try to break the silence by saying something. No, none of you are ever those people. And this is actually what happens in our text. So verse 15, there's an awkward silence. Verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Pause right there. That probably sounds pretty foreign to us, but what he's making is this theological statement, this big statement that everyone at the table could agree upon. He knew this statement would go over very well with the religious people at the table Jesus has just frustrated and offended. Um, it's kind of like if you were in, uh, in downtown Minneapolis or at a restaurant or at a bar and there started to be something that got out of control and someone tried to ease the tension by saying, go Vikings, <laughs> right? We, we can all get behind that. Maybe that'll solve the problem. Let's say something we all agree on. Right? And that's what's happened here in this text. So Jesus responds, verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, pause right there again. This would have been the second invitation. In their culture, they sent out an initial invitation, said the party's coming in a few days or a few weeks, and people would say, yes, I'm coming. They agreed to come. There was a head count, so the master would know how much food to prepare, how many goats to slaughter, etc. And then the food's ready, and so they sent the master out to say, come, the food is now ready. That's what was happening here. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still a third one said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, those might sound like reasonable excuses to you because I know um, I'll personally admit I found myself trying to get out of a social situation I wasn't thrilled about. Right? But we'll, we'll see in just a minute. These are very lame excuses. Very lame excuses. And so this parable continues, verse 21. The servant came back, reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry. And he ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And then our best understanding of this text is this next line, verse 24, is actually Jesus turns back to the serious religious folks around him and says, I tell you, none of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So if you've learned nothing else from this series, I hope you've at least learned when Jesus shows up at a party, anything can happen. Everything is fair game. He might say or do something completely off the wall to really like mix up the party. And at this table in our text, this man, maybe he's the host, is just trying to diffuse an awkward situation by saying something. He thought, yeah, we can all agree this is a good idea, right? So the great banquet that he's talking about is this reference to the book of Isaiah where, where there's this image of God's people being triumphant. And that's what he's saying. Yeah, we can all feast in the great banquet. Woo! And instead Jesus goes, oh, you want to talk about a banquet? 
let me tell you a story about a banquet. And I'm sure he regretted what he said the moment this took off. So Jesus uses this very image of a banquet to challenge them and to challenge us on what life is really about, especially life when you know and walk with God, the God who created us and loves us. So when Jesus shows up at a party, anything can happen. So we better be ready. Things can happen such as when Jesus shows up at a party, we have to hold loose to our ideas of what success looks like, our ideas about what success looks like. Um, Several months ago, we were living in North Carolina, and I got, I'll say tricked. I got tricked into being on an Earth Day panel on religion and the environment. This is not my forte. And, and so there I am in, in this massive facility, the fairgrounds in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for an Earth Day fair, wedged into a corner. There are four of us, an imam, a priest, a rabbi, and myself. We're mic'd up, and there's a moderator asking us questions. And the first question she asks is, tell us what your faith text, your faith text says about the world, about the earth, about creation. And I thought, well, that's easy. I can talk about God making the earth and making it good and that he loves us. I can say all these wonderful, beautiful things. And she goes, we'll let the rabbi go first. Does anybody see why that's a problem? (laughs) Right? Because he says exactly what I'm going to say, but he uses a lot more eloquent words, talks about the Hebrew. He goes in depth. It's beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. And then they hand me the microphone and I don't know what to say. Because he just said everything I was going to say. I had to completely reevaluate what my idea of success looked like in that moment. And so in our parable today, the man who's throwing a party is being, is being challenged on his idea of what a successful party and a successful life look like. So think about for yourself. What would make a party successful? Kids, all the kids in the audience. Like what would make a party successful? I think for many of us, it's just that our friends, people that we want to show up, they actually come and that they have a good time. Like that's the baseline for a good party. And for this man in an ancient Near Eastern culture, a successful banquet would mean that everybody who was somebody in his town would come. All the influential people would show up. They would have a great time. And then in the future, when they threw parties, he would get to come. He would get invited. That's how their social world work. This is similar to the way that our social world works today. And so he's throwing a party. He has this amazing guest list. Everybody who he wants to come, all the right people are coming. And then when the invitation goes out, they all start to make excuses. And Jesus's table audience would have known right away, these are the worst excuses. Jesus picks egregious, lame, awkward, embarrassing, offensive excuses so that everyone at the table would know that's an awful excuse. So for whatever reason in this story, all of the guests in the town have decided to collude against the master and to say, we are going to embarrass him and ostracize him and alienate him. There's this sneaky injustice that's happening against the master. The question at that point of the story is, how will he respond? And I even ask you to consider, how would you respond if you had thrown this party and all the guests decide that rather than coming, they're going to work together to embarrass you? How would you respond? So we're going to get to his response in just a minute, but what I want you to see is Jesus is using this idea of what makes a successful party in their culture 
to challenge their ideas of what a successful life looks like. So there's irony in this story. Because this is the nation of Israel, and even in Israel, no one would have thrown a party and invited people that couldn't mutually benefit them. And that's ironic, because the nation only exists because God one day came to a wandering, homeless Aramean man named Abram and said, I will bless you. I will give you land, and you will then be a blessing to the whole world. And the whole world will know who God is and what God's like and what God's blessings are like because I have blessed you. That was how God would define success for his people. But instead, the way they lived life together as a nation basically said, don't miss this, God is like us and looks like us and talks like us and acts like us. And if you're not like us, and don't talk like us, and don't think like us, and don't act like us, you can't benefit us, and you're not welcome at God's table. That was never God's plan for his people. And so Jesus is challenging them to rethink what success might look like, both as they throw parties and as they live their lives, as they spend time with others and walk with God in the world, what might it look like to live successful lives? And the second thing I want you to see is that when Jesus shows up at a party, he wants us to make the most out of the life we've been given. I don't want you to point any fingers, but have you ever met somebody who is really talented and gifted? And they know it, but they're also really needy about it, right? They always need someone to tell them they're doing a good job or they'll just fall apart. Like I think about some pitchers I played baseball with who were just phenomenal at pitching. But the moment they got, like, they had a rough patch, they would completely fall apart. Or the moment the coach yelled at them, they would just completely go to shambles. And they would be no good as a pitcher anymore. This is kind of what's happening with the Pharisees at the table. They've been included. They've been blessed. They are God's people. And yet they're spending their whole lives trying to just prove that they belong at the table. They just constantly want affirmation. Yes, we belong at the table. They can't enjoy the benefits of being God's people and, God, and having God's blessings because they just want more. And how many of us spend so much of our time wanting more, going after more of whatever it is that we can't enjoy what we've been given? So back to our parable. The man has thrown a party. All of the important people in the town have said, we're going to embarrass you. They have declared with their actions, hey man, you don't belong. And so what did he do? He could take it as an opportunity to prove them wrong. To demonstrate, no, I am influential, I'm important, I'm powerful. He could get back at them, he could try to get justice. But instead, there's this moment in the text where everything changes. He doesn't sulk over what he doesn't have. He realizes, I have been blessed immensely. I have a party and it's ready to throw. And he enters into the story of others, those who are outside of him, and blesses them. This is in direct contrast. Realize, this is in direct contrast to the people sitting around the table with Jesus. They have been blessed. The Pharisees have been blessed. But rather than using that blessing to bless others, they have made it primarily about themselves. So rather than fretting over what we don't have, can we trust that we have enough, that God has blessed us and that he is faithful? When Jesus has done something incredible in your life, something beautiful, big or small, 
can we trust that our calling is simply to boldly extend that blessing into the world around us and that God will continue to provide for us and hold a seat for us at the table. The last thing I want you to see in the text is this. When Jesus shows up at a party, we will start to see unexpected things we didn't see before. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 16. Um, The nation of Israel has their very first king. His name is Saul, and he's not going so well. So God goes to a prophet named Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to go to a town called Bethlehem and seek out a man named Jesse. One of his sons is going to be the next king. So Samuel goes. He meets Jesse. Jesse brings out his oldest son who's tall and handsome and broad-shouldered. And Samuel thinks, that's the king. And God says, no, not the king. So, so Jesse keeps bringing out his sons. They get con- considerably less impressive as it goes. And every time God goes, nope, not the king. So Samuel in his frustration says, do you have any other kids? And Jesse says, yeah, I have one son. He's the youngest. He's the runt. He's out in the field. And Samuel goes, well, bring, bring him in. And so David comes in and he's been in the fields and he's dirty and he's small and he's young. And God goes, that's the king. And Samuel's like, God, I don't understand. And God says, that's because you look at the outward appearance. But I look at the heart. God looks at the heart. You see, when all we look at is the outside, the exterior, we get what we see. There's nothing there but what we're looking at. But when we learn to look deeper, when we listen to people's stories, we take time to get to know them, we start to see what God sees, the heart, what's underneath, who people really are, what they really need. And what we learn from our text and what we learn from all over Scripture is God sees those who we are often tempted to overlook. Not intentionally, it's just not on our radar. We don't see what God sees. It reminds me of a story of of the early church. And so in the fourth century, in the fourth century, there were these church leaders called the Cappadocians, and they were in the area of what we might now call modern Turkey. And there was this severe famine that was afflicting the poor. And they would preach to their congregations, particularly the rich in their churches. And they were known for giving these sermons that in in grotesque and vivid detail described the plight of the poor. And there's a line from a man named St. Gregory that stands out in particular. He says, these, the poor, are our brothers in Christ, whether you like it or not. It strikes me, right? Like it it should strike all of us. That he was trying to get his church to see what Jesus is trying to get those at the table to see, which is that God sees what we don't see. God knows what we don't know. And we are being called to develop eyes and hearts that see what God sees. That enter into the stories of those who are often tempted to overlook. And to see that those who are not like us, have just as much a right to be included in God's table and God's party as we do. Because God sees them how he sees all of us. He sees us in need of a Savior. And when Jesus sits down at tables and when he parties and when he heads to the cross, the message is that God knows you. He sees you. God loves you. And through his death and his resurrection, 
Jesus extends to us unexpected invitations to come and sit at his table that we should know that there is room for all of us and that we can come just as we are. We don't have to earn our way and that we can leave and never be the same. Remember that when Jesus shows up at a party, anything can happen. This is still true today because we, those who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Christ lives in us and you show up to parties big and small and Jesus shows up to parties through you. And this Jesus does theology every bit as much at a party as he ever does in a synagogue. Because what he wants us to know is how we treat others says a ton about who we believe God is and how we believe that God sees them. So when you show up at a party or just in the everyday lives of others, my prayer is that you would also notice that Jesus shows up and that you would learn to respond in ways that say and demonstrate you are welcome at God's party. When the parable ends, we are left with two tables. The first table is the actual table where Jesus sits. It is surrounded by Pharisees and it is shrouded with religious insecurity and performance and judgmental status seekers where you're always trying to measure up. And then there's a second table. And it's the table at the end of the parable that Jesus tells. Where walls have come down where strangers have found themselves included at the table, where God's grace and hospitality is extended far beyond imagination, and people learn that they have more than enough when Jesus brings them to the table of God. Which table are you going to sit at today? Let's pray. Holy and loving God, we thank you and praise you for all that you've blessed us with, for the grace that you've demonstrated to us, for the ways in which you have loved us, for the party that you have thrown, and the way you have included us at your table. I pray for every single person sitting in this room that they would know that they are loved by you, that they would understand their invitation to the table that comes without hindrance, without restrictions, that we can come just as we are. And for those of us uh, sitting here who need encouragement for what it looks like for us to walk with Jesus, who walk with your son in everyday life. May we find rest that it's not about trying. It's just about following you into our neighborhoods, into our parties, into our families, into our workplaces. God, you are good. You are good beyond imagination. May we know that. May we affirm that with everything that we are. We love you and praise you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus has thrown a party. Jesus has thrown a party. It is the greatest of banquets. And he includes us. He includes you and I. He invites us to the table where we find his lavish hospitality, acceptance, and grace. Many of us come this morning tired and weary and anxious and overburdened. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for years and some of us are just starting that journey. But nonetheless, to all of us, he says, come, taste, and see that I am good. This sometimes feels like a formal meal. But in fact, our hope is that it feels like a meal that you can come to and feel at home, that you can relax, and that every time that we come and we taste and see that God is good, that we know that we're coming home 
in Jesus. We're coming home to the one who sat with his disciples around the table on the night before he went to the cross. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, whenever you eat this meal, you celebrate and you proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection until he comes again that we may live with him triumphant. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, we thank you for this time. We pray that it would be a time where you transform these ordinary elements into means of your grace, that we would walk forward, that we would tangibly taste with our bodies to to see that you are indeed good. May this be a blessing that is extended into the rest of our lives. And may you enter into our lives. Let us know your grace and forgiveness and never be the same. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.